You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I'm Kyla Lee, and with me, yet again, once again, back again. Paul it's been Duncan. a while. It's been a while. Yeah, well... Glad to be back. I decided to, you know, kick you off the podcast for a short while in favor of far more important guests. You did have some very important <laughs> guests, and uh, there's been lots of great feedback about it. Uh, the David Eby one was uh, excellent. I uh, really enjoyed it. The uh, authors of the uh, of the book were also good. I didn't agree with them, but um, it was a good listen. And uh, then also, uh, of course, Mike Farnworth, and that was actually big revelations on there. Yeah. Um, I've noticed that uh, lots of journalists have uh, been discussing things things that were discussed on your podcast. So obviously it's not just Brandon listening to it. Shout out to Brandon. And the UBC LSLAP students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they're listening to it. Shout out to the UBC students. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yes, that's correct. Um, we did have some exciting guests, but now we have you. And I wanted to talk about some things that really only you and I could discuss. Well, and the other thing is we've had like some pretty substantial things in the news lately that are worthy of discussing you and I. Yes. The first is the thing that I think took a lot of us in the driving law legal community by surprise. The fact that the driver in the Humboldt crash entered a guilty plea to each one of the 29 charges he was facing. I was shocked when I saw it. Right? I was shocked when I saw it. I could not believe that he was pleading guilty. But what's even more interesting about this, because had you or I been representing him, I mean, obviously we don't know what the evidence is, but we would have thought, you know, risk of what you're going to get if you run this to the bitter end and are convicted versus what you get if you plead guilty, probably not that much different. Um, And yet he wanted to plead guilty despite his lawyer telling him not to. Well, his reasons are interesting too. I mean, his reasons are interesting. I don't know if his lawyer was telling him not to, was he? I, I, I can't. Yeah, so his lawyer is Mark Brayford. He's a smart know. guy, nice yeah, guy, yeah. yeah. Very good lawyer. Um, and he gave a statement after the guilty pleas, basically indicating that this was something his client wanted to do. It was not something that he would have instructed him to do, but that he did it anyway, and he had to respect his client's right to plead guilty and is going to respect him or represent him throughout that process. It, it, it's admirable. I guess in the sense that he wants to do that. But when I think of the legal test, I'm not persuaded that the legal test is met for dangerous operation of a motor vehicle just because there was an accident. There's lots of reasons that that test may not have been met. And even if the accident was catastrophic in its consequences, I mean, this was from everything that at least we can tell from the media stories, an instance of a vehicle going through a stop sign. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, so we're struggling. I mean, part of my struggle with it um, is that, you know, we're going on the basis of the news stories. The basis of the news stories, usually, you know, if you were to rely on the news stories, you would just 
convict the person. <laughs> and on the basis of the news stories here, even when I was like, I think I was on Linda Steele show and people were phoning in and, and a lot of people were really sympathetic to the driver. Like how, you know, this can happen in Saskatchewan. It's very flat. It's the, you can miss stop signs. That's why they, you know, are, are put rumble strips and things like that. And if there weren't rumble strips, then that can be a problem. I mean, most people looking at it wondered whether or not this met the test. And that was just lay people phoning in. Right. And that's because the driving in order to get a conviction for dangerous driving has to be a marked departure from what the, you know, ordinary driver would do in those circumstances. And as I understand, when you're driving long stretches of straight, flat roadway um, and you come up to a stop sign, it's not unusual to slow down, look both ways, see nothing, proceed and not come to a complete stop. It's not unusual. It it bothers me that people do that because there's a damn good reason to stop. It's not far from a common occurrence, though. So, well, and this is the thing, right? Like, look at the case that we had here in Vancouver with um, that doctor who was killed in the accident at, uh, like, 41st and Oak. And the speed of the vehicle that struck his vehicle and killed him was about 140 kilometers an hour as it was going through the intersection. And... He was acquitted at trial because essentially the judge couldn't conclude that it was a marked departure from what ordinary drivers do in the lower mainland. To on on Oak Street. At, on Oak Street to speed up when the light's about to turn yellow and you want to make that intersection. I remember watching that video and thinking to myself that it didn't seem that fast to me. It looked more like 80, 80 to 90 kilometers an hour. But that's but the thing, right? That's being appealed, though, and and so it's still the law until it's overturned. No, I know, but I'm, I, you know, you kind of get... sound like the superintendent in all of my judicial reviews. <laughs> but Lee, that's been appealed. Yeah. Oh yeah, we're not going to follow the law because it's under appeal. Um, I I get the sense over the course of my um, time as a lawyer that um, what would be a defense before, or what was considered a marked departure before that it's becoming more um, restrictive, more conservative, less likely to um, uh, sort of give way to the defense that, well, this isn't that far off what normal people do. I don't agree. I think, I think, and, you know, I've been a lawyer a lot less time than you, but I think the idea of what's a marked departure is a constantly moving target because driving behavior changes and driving behavior adapts and changes in response to different technology that we see being implemented every day as vehicles become safer. Vehicles can stop themselves and avoid collisions and stay within their lanes and... Oh, I see what you're saying. You're saying that the the version of what is a marked departure is going to change. People drive faster now in Vancouver than they used to, for example. Sure, and you can um, drive faster in Vancouver because your cars are better at stopping. What I'm saying is that the sense I get from the courts is that the courts are, are you know, they may be fluid, but if anything, they're going the opposite direction. If anything, they're they're looking at it and saying, well, this may not have been considered a marked departure 20 years ago in the case law, but, you know, I think this is a marked departure. And I, I that's just the sense I get. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to give you any... But there are cases out there that say running a stop sign is a marked departure, and there are cases that say it's not. Well, yeah, running a red light is a marked departure, and it's a dangerous thing and can pose a danger. I just, I mean, the idea, though, that you would go and... I understand this guy must be experiencing 
such extreme remorse for what's happened. But still, the idea that you would go and plead guilty to all 29 charges, not even try and negotiate some type of package deal where the information's amended so that you amalgamate them into one charge of impaired driving causing death with, you know... Not impaired, dangerous driving. Sorry, dangerous driving causing death with, you know, numerous victims as opposed to, you know... 13 separate charges. There's other ways you could have done it. And um, you kind of get the sense that um, that the accused here, I guess now he's the convicted person, um, was looking at it himself and wanted to punish himself to the furthest extent that he could. And some people do that because they feel so horrible uh, about the wrong that they did, even if they're looking at it and saying, I might have a defense, I might not be criminally responsible, but you know, I feel so bad about these deaths. I know I should have stopped. I know I'm still responsible for the accident. You know, I want to throw myself on the, uh, uh, in the pit here. I want, you know, I want to, I want to take whatever punishment I can get because I feel so bad in a, you know, in a, a sort of a moral way. And if you are suffering profound depression, as I would expect that he would be, uh, you might, you know, come to that conclusion it's not you know you might have been a a sound mind when you were driving and then afterward you're trying to deal with the stress of this i mean i i I cannot imagine the stress of having the deaths and injuries of those people you know on your on your hands that makes sense it raises two questions for me uh the first question i'm going to tell you both of them so we can talk about each of them before i forget the first question is what you know what role does the court in canvassing the factors under 606 you know that a, a plea is free voluntarily made and informed what role does the court have in circumstances where it's evident that a person is experiencing such a degree of mental distress over the consequences of their actions that they might not be thinking clearly in entering the plea and does that give rise to potential grounds for appealing a guilty plea but also secondly where does the desire for self-flagellation fall into the sentencing process and the considerations on sentence? Those are good questions, Kyla. Why don't we take a call? <laughs> oh, we're not set up <laughs> to take no calls. <laughs> uh, we are set up to take calls. <laughs> yes, we could. We, don't. we could take a call. Um, this is of course, rec- it's not live. It's this recorded. It's recorded live, but uh, not broadcast live. Yeah, I mean, I have. I've never turned my mind to either of those things before. I mean, the the voluntariness of the plea when you're in a in this mental state. I mean, kind of the court's got to accept the fact that you are stepping forward and taking the plea and that's your decision if you if you conclude that you're guilty i mean the court could look at it and say after they've heard the facts they could say i don't know that this makes it out and i see a reasonable doubt and i need to see the evidence called they could do that they could still reject the plea for not is a court going to do that in saskatchewan well or anywhere i don't know i mean well, no. but I mean, I would, but I'm never going to be a judge. <laughs> I'd be like, wait a minute. <laughs> Hang on a second. I'm not sure that this is uh, that this meets the test. You're still going to have to persuade me that this meets the test. I'd be rejecting pleas left, right, and center. <laughs> I don't know that I would. I don't know what I would do. I, I, I could go into that for a long time on a philosophical discussion. But the but, next part, point you wanted to make. No, no, no. I want to. I want to. You want to flesh that out more. Flesh that out more because you said that you know a court should just accept the plea, but courts deal with people who are mentally ill all the time, and order things like psychiatric evaluations before they accept pleas. 
That's true. And, you know, that might be a circumstance where it's necessary or appropriate. And you would think that the um, the Crown and Defence have probably already considered that. I mean, as a defence lawyer, I would be, I would have to satisfy myself again that it's free and voluntary and that my client was in the position to do it. And, I'm, you know, he's got a, a very skilled lawyer dealing with it who I'm sure has turned his mind to that. So I, I guess I would operate under the assumption that that is the case but I you know when I sit and think about it I don't know how you can be approaching it objectively when you are in that mental state and I guess as an officer of the court at the end of the day his lawyer can't let him go in there and plead guilty if he's not satisfied that the guy is doing it free voluntary and informed there's lots of times we can do things that are quick and dirty because there's really not much downside and you're you're getting your client some sort of wonderful little thing um as long as it's ethical when you say quick quick and dirty i just want to clarify not dirty unethical (laughs) no not not unethical in any way but i mean you're, you're you're going into court you're dealing with something fairly quickly you've negotiated something out you've explained it to your client you've explained it to your client again um you know you wonder how much you've got to explain to your client to make sure that it's free and voluntary and that they understand it you know sometimes free and voluntary is this is such a good deal and you're so guilty of the other offense you better understand that you're doing well i don't really like the idea of doing well yeah but you know you should still do it um you know and you get them your client to that point Mm -hmm. um and it's fine, but you're not dealing with, you know, a bunch of people who have died in a tragic accident and have been, you know, catastrophically injured. So, you know, your, your, your level of ensuring that your client is fully aware of their legal position and doing it, you know, I, I worry that, that the person was looking at it and thinking, I, I, I'm just going to plead guilty because I don't want to put these families through more stress, or I'm just going to plead guilty because I can't afford the quarter million dollars that it, you know, takes to properly defend this case uh, with the experts and everything. Well, presumably, uh, he qualifies for legal aid. Oh, I'm sure he does qualify for legal aid, but you know, you're not going to get Mark to d- take this case probably on legal aid because the legal aid rates are not going to pay him, um, you know, the amount of money that he would be able to get if he was just dealing with his regular practice on top of the fact that it's uh, a huge stress and on top of the fact that you also have to hire a bunch of experts. So even if you've got legal aid, is legal aid going to pay, you know, the $18,000 for the collision uh, expert report? You know, I don't know. I, I doubt it. But my point is, there can be all sorts of other considerations that are going on through his mind, aside from innocence or guilt, that can lead him to come to the conclusion that I'm going to plead guilty. And that is always a tough one. It's a tough one as a lawyer sometimes. It's much more difficult in a serious one like this. I'm going to operate under the assumption that all of those things were addressed and dealt with. But man, you know, that's what, when I first read that, first thing in the morning I saw it on Twitter, um, I just started thinking like, Really? How, how, you know, really, (laughs) why, and what sort of, Mental process took you to this. My first thought until I, you know, heard of the statement of his lawyer was that the evidence must be much more significant than what we had been led to believe by statements to the media. But I don't think that's the case. No, because I'm, I mean, the, the, you. I read all of those early news stories and you look at the way that the, that it's laid out there and it just looks like a guy who went through a stop sign. Yeah. Okay, but then my next question is, where does this this desire for self-flagellation 
play into the sentencing process. I mean, the considerations on sentencing, as set out in the criminal code... Remorse. Well, promoting a sense of responsibility in the offender. So, check off that box. Yeah. He's got... I don't know. I, I might say maybe the greatest... Uh, demonstration sort of publicly throughout this whole process of a sense of responsibility of any accused facing serious charges that I've ever seen. Yes. I, I mean, it's certainly substantial. And the fact that he's entered this plea at this very early date. Um, but I don't know. I mean, we've heard the statement from his lawyer. I get that. Um, I guess there will be evidence that's presented at the sentencing. Uh, a lot of people are very remorseful for things that happen i mean but does it does your desire to punish yourself by saying you know what even if i get 15 20 years in jail for all of this um i'm gonna plead guilty i deserve it because i did a horrible thing and then your conduct is not that far on the line of of what is dangerous does the court step in in sentencing and say i'm not gonna let you use this sentencing process as an opportunity to try and mitigate your own personal grief by by having the court punish you or is that part of the role of sentencing that is a very twisted way that you just structured that sorry no i twisted in like not not twisted and confusing but twisted in like weird logic Um, i don't i don't know no the idea this whole this whole thing the court's not there to exonerate somebody by by assisting them in suffering pain. That's not like, I, 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 I... I know, but the court also has to impose a sentence that's within the range for the offense, which is, we're talking years in jail, potentially a decade or more. A long time in jail, probably. Um, whatever the sentence is, I mean, I, I think obviously it's something that's taken into account is his extreme remorse. Um, and um, I, I think he he is effectively, I mean, general deterrence is met, right? <laughs> people, anybody who's seen this would understand just the, the gravity of it. And hopefully a lot of people are thinking very carefully as they approach stop signs. Um, no, I, I mean, I there's a lot to deal with there when it comes to the sentencing. I'm, I, I, I feel sorry for all of those families. I, if I was um, one of those families, I don't know that I would be so content as that they have expressed themselves to be, uh, because I don't know that I could persuade myself that this is the right responsibility. You mean a guilty plea and a and a sentence, a and, jail sentence? Yeah, it's going to be a jail sentence. Well, yeah. So. Anyway, such a cheery topic we started with Sorry. Okay, well, let's talk about something cheerier, Paul. Let's talk about police busting down your door and demanding a breath sample because you drank when you got home. Okay, so some... There's lots of backstory to this one. When Bill C-46 was introduced, and if you were listening to the podcast, you heard uh, a few weeks ago two authors of a new book who uh, have uh, written about criminal driving offenses in Canada, Um, C-46 basically changed the entire 
drinking driving scheme in this country, particularly with respect to overweight. It was sold to us as being necessary to deal with the scourge of cannabis-impaired drivers. How many cannabis-impaired drivers have you seen charged? None yet. Charged, yeah. yeah. In BC? I know. But yeah. the, so that was the boogeyman, and the boogeyman was... Uh, um, you know, we, we were told that we had to build a wall to protect us from the boogeyman, uh, so they had to change the impaired driving law, and really, this looks like it was just the pet peeve things of a few prosecutors across the country and maybe some police officers, and so they changed the law, and so, of course, we talked already about the, um, the mandatory, arbitrary, random breath testing provisions, and, of course, a story came out. Uh, about this just a couple days ago, and it was uh, someone taking bottles to the bottle depot. Yeah, and he had too many bottles in the officer's opinion, which is straight up bullshit. I like I don't know how else to say it. I've been I've done like radio interviews, and I've had to bite my tongue because you can't say bullshit on the radio. But it is some straight up bullshit. The idea that you can have too many bottles. How many is too many? Well, that's interesting because the officer in this case. Of course, there's no test anymore. There's no legal test uh, to make one of these demands. You just have to... Right, the person you have to have grounds to stop the person. You still have to conduct a lawful stop. So sure, he's using you... the number of bottles to justify his stop. Well, the, well, there, okay, so there's the unlawful stop. But uh, he's doing that after the fact. You know, the stop can be lawful because they can stop you to check sobriety, right? So that's a lawful stop. It's stupid, but it's a lawful stop. Uh, and then the next step is he makes a demand. And, you know, of course, there's no test, but there is a test. The police officers created his own test, as we predicted they would, and his own test here was, you've got too many bottles. You, you know, those are too many bottles to be returning. Yeah. Let's all just try and discourage recycling in this country right now. We've got protests throughout British Columbia about pipelines and the huge environmental impact and the impact on Indigenous lands, and we should let the police discourage recycling. My mom texted me. Look, in, independently of of anything that I'd been asked about in the news, nothing had aired yet, um, independently of that, she sent me a text and she said, did you hear about this? I'm not taking bottles back to the bottle depot anymore. I don't want to get pulled over. Well, we've had sort of like a the, the social contract. The police have always want, told me, we should have arbitrary testing because the contract is once you've got a driver's license, you submit to being tested. And I would always say, you know what? I think if you're not drinking at all, you're not submitting to being tested. I think part of the social contract is if I choose to drink and there's going to be alcohol on my breath or I admit to consumption, then I agree to being tested. But if I haven't had anything to drink... You know, no, Paul, it's so hard to detect these people, which is why you have to look for things like how many bottles they have. Well, and there, there's the new test. That's the thing. The officer has applied a new test. And the new test is, let's put these on the wall. Let's throw this one up on the wall. The first... The first one we've heard, I mean, it's not, you know, we, we're, we're expecting that it's going to be your testing because you're East Indian and you're under the age of 30. We've talked random breath testing your male. death on this podcast. But somehow this story about this individual, this 71-year-old Triggered man, something else. Triggered a discussion about a really strange provision in the law that allows the police to take a breath sample from you two hours after you've been driving. More than that. Or more than that. But as long as within two hours of when you were driving, your blood alcohol level exceeded 80 milligrams percent, you're guilty, even if it was only due to alcohol you consumed after you stopped driving. So here is the offense you've committed now. If you are 
drinking after you drove. So you got home. I mean, we can talk about the the issue of alcohol and a- alcohol in your body, but right now the offense in Canada is if within two hours of ceasing to operate a vehicle, a conveyance they call it now, uh, your blood alcohol concentration is at or over 80 milligrams and 100 milliliters, you have now committed the offense. You've committed it. And it doesn't matter if you consume the alcohol before driving, some of it before driving, or none of it before driving and all of it after driving. Or some of it while driving. Or while driving. Or all of it while driving. Well, unfortunately, there are people (laughs) who do both of those things. But the point is... Just want to cover all the bases here. Yeah. Well, my point is you can be sitting at your kitchen table, have driven an hour before, had nothing else to drink up until that point where you pour yourself a four-ounce glass of Crown Royal and Coke and start drinking and get yourself to 80 milligrams or not even to 80 milligrams. You don't have to get to 80 milligrams theoretically. And then you can be, if you are subject to a breath test, tested, you provide a sample, you provide a sample at 70 milligrams, that's enough because they can use their back extrapolation formula to put you up to 80 milligrams within that two hour window. So the offense now is basically sitting at your kitchen table and drinking until they could extrapolate back to you being at 80. Now, when I'm sure you listened to the podcast episode that you weren't on with Peter Keene and Karen Jokinen, and he talked about this briefly, and he said that this was designed to deal with what the Supreme Court of Canada termed pathological behavior, um, which was the people who drink an excessive amount, then get in their car and rush home, you know, I only live 10 minutes away, before the alcohol kicks in, so that they don't commit an offense, but the reality is that they're still impaired because you feel the effects of the alcohol before your blood alcohol level catches up to where you are. And I agree that that's pathological behavior, but I it pained me greatly listening to that well, because it was it was it was so. I mean, like just because crowning. you can do it, it was really crowning. And the book I've read the book, and it's it feels really like it's a serious crown bias to me as a defense lawyer. But you know, I I just think of so many times that all right, you're. You know, you live on Bowen Island, you've got a five-minute drive home, you had a glass of wine with dinner, you're walking out, they give you a two-ounce shot, you drive, you know you're fine, you know you're like 20 milligrams, but you hit the police officer, you you know, you run into the, not running, not an accident, but you yeah. see the police, you know. Uh, you encounter. You encounter the police uh, 10 seconds from your house, um, you end up detained, going back to the detachment, they test you, and they test you at some point, and they test you, and they get 70 milligrams, sure. and then they can extrapolate up to 80 yeah. milligrams, and, you know, you no longer have a defense, because you are over 80 milligrams within that time period. See, I just think, like, if the concern was the quote-unquote pathological behavior of the people who are knowingly engaging in bolus drinking or engaging in risk-taking with their drinking, why not write the law in such a way as to address that? Why not write the law to say, you know, you, if your blood alcohol level exceeds is at or over 80 two hours after ceasing to operate a motor vehicle in circumstances where you are fleeing from the police or have recently been involved in a motor vehicle collision, 
then you've committed an offense. Why not do that? Because that addresses those concerns. The people who are trying to outrun the police from the roadblock, we've seen that, or <laughs> not very successful, usually, um, or the people who are trying to get away from their responsibility at the scene of a collision. Of course they could do that. I can think of a hundred smart ways they could do it. You could write the law really clearly to address the quote-unquote pathological behavior without capturing the completely innocent behavior of getting home from work, pouring yourself a good stiff drink because your boss is an asshole. No offense. No, just kidding. I'm not. <laughs> You're not. That's why I felt comfortable to make that joke. Well, it's not that, <laughs> oh, just that. You don't... This is so sad. <laughs> You don't drink anymore. I know. But I still That's don't like to be, I still don't like that to be, yeah, okay, so it's funny because of that. It's funny because it's not true in any way. Um, anyway, the, you could do that. Maybe you work at some other law firm and, and commit an offense. But Our firm is basically like a, a collective where it's we. It's like a television law firm where they all, you know, hug it out at the end of the day. Exactly. <sighs> Anyway, yes, that is the you know, that is the offense. You go home, you pour yourself a stiff drink. Um, so since this law has come into uh, into effect on December eighteenth, over Christmas and New Year's, I will tell you that thousands and thousands of Canadians have committed the crime of having a blood alcohol concentration over eighty milligrams in the two hours after they drove. See, I'm the only one who hasn't done it because. You don't, don't drink. Um, and because they can use a back extrapolation formula, theoretically, they could test you like six hours later and you could be at 20 having had nothing to drink before you drove. And they can back extrapolate adding 10 milligrams an hour to that two hour window. Um, and, um, and at that point, you're guilty. Which is ridiculous. And even better. I mean, you know, it's that stupid of a law and it's it's have, hard. Have, as a woman, have a double Caesar on Sunday morning after driving your boyfriend home from the bar because you were his designated driver, and then they back extrapolate and you've committed the offense. Yeah, and at some point you might have been to 30 milligrams, but they can just use whatever and back extrapolate to com you've committed the offense. That's an evidentiary issue. I mean, the, the, the offense is the 80 milligrams in the two hours after, but there's the evidentiary issue of that they can prove. evidentiary issues, there's a defense. The defense is unbelievable. So first of all, you've committed the offense. You get to the point where they've proven you've committed the offense. You are a bad person because your blood alcohol. Pathological. Pathological. Your blood alcohol. Your blood alcohol concentration has been over 80 milligrams in two hours after. You can then call evidence to prove a bunch of things. You must prove that you, and, and it's up to you to prove this. Paul's reading from the uh, impaired driving textbook, by the way. I, I don't have to. Yeah, I am. Um, you can I don't have to read it from. You discount for another four days. Yeah. Um, go back and listen to the podcast. Um, you have to prove that um, you had no reasonable expectation that you'd be forced to provide a sample. I don't know how that, and, and, not but, and you also have to prove what your blood alcohol concentration would have been basically at the time you were driving, that it was under 80, it, it also has to reflect what the um, what the instrument's given, and so you have to testify about what you had to drink. Which means you have to hire a toxicologist, which is problematic for a couple reasons. First reason being, it's expensive, and um, people who are facing impaired driving charges already are spending a lot of money. They're not covered by legal aid, except in serious cases. And then legal aid will, you know, run you through the ringer about whether or not you should get a toxicologist. 
And secondly, because of evidence to the contrary being eliminated, the private defense toxicologist world is very small now. There are not a lot of people that you can hire to give those opinions anymore. Well, maybe some people who work at the RCMP lab are going to see an opportunity to become private toxicologists. I mean, I suppose you could subpoena somebody from the RCMP lab since they're an expert and then just, just subpoena them in every make case. Make them your own, make them your bitch. <laughs> but like in a legal way. Yeah. Kyla didn't mean to demean anyone there. The point <laughs> is that... Turn them into your own witness. Yeah. For the purposes of establishing your defense. So, in, Although I the, learned on the podcast with Peter Keene that in Ontario, they actually have a toxicology services that provides toxicologists for accused individuals. Why don't we have that in BC, Attorney General Eby? I had no idea. I didn't get that from your podcast. Was that chatting with him before or after? I didn't hear that. Yeah, it was somewhere in there. Oh, well, I'm not going to listen. maybe it was chatting I'm not gonna, other time. I'm not going to listen to it again because I, I it hurts me listening to it. These changes to the code, I think to myself, you know, I, I, I mean, these ones, this is just a, a, a basically an outright stupid one. Uh, but the other changes to the code, you're looking at them and you're thinking to yourself like, okay, maybe you can do that. But why? But why? Yeah. Would, do you really feel that that's appropriate in our society? Do you really think we should be using that sketchy method of, of legislating somebody somebody's guilt um you know we make offenses but uh when it comes to over 08 cases we're now legislating their guilt and we've done that before it's gotten you know with presumptions and things like that and we've taken it to a sort of whole new level well that's the other thing that i wanted to mention about this defense because the third aspect of the defense that you have to prove that you weren't over 80 at or over 80 when you were um driving and that your drinking pattern after driving would have put you at the level that was calculated on the instrument when you provided your samples was the very type of evidence that the Supreme Court of Canada said went too far in Saint-Ange-la-Marie to require an accused person to show three things. They said, no, you shouldn't have to show three things. You should uh, be only have to show evidence tending to show that there was an improper operation or malfunction and that it could have caused an elevated reading, but not that also it would have led to the blood alcohol level as declared on the instrument. So I think we're going to see at least the third aspect of that fail for the same reasons in Saint-Ange-la-Marie, which means even though the government supposedly read Saint-Ange-la-Marie and is like trying to deal with this pathological behavior, they didn't read it very closely. Well, I didn't, it's like they didn't read the legislation closely. Remember the first version of this, Michael Spratt pointed out when you were there, um, the first version of this, they had their back extrapolation formula would make every person guilty in the country because be they guilty. could, they could add 10 milligrams an hour <laughs> to zero. to z from starting at zero. So they test you, you blow a zero. Okay. We can add 10 milligrams an hour. So long as it was at least 10 hours ago well, or back, eight hours ago, then they, they go could go back far enough. They'll get to law school and then, you know, <laughs> Um, Some of those parties. <laughs> the, well, they, they're adding 10 milligrams an hour and they want to put you to 80. They have to just go eight hours. Um, 
So if they went nine hours after, they could put you into that zone starting at zero. So everybody was guilty in the first version of the legislation. It wasn't until it got further on that they that it's they too changed bad they that. didn't leave that because it would be great to argue that in court and go, Your Honor, based on this formula, you're guilty. The Crown's guilty. The police officer's guilty. Well, right I'm now, guilty. right now, based on this formula, the current formula, most people are guilty because the. Um, Anybody who drinks at home or drinks in the bar and gets and drove there and gets themselves to 80 milligrams is committing the offense. That is what is now criminalized. I don't think the restaurant industry is going to want people to come in and sit at their tables for two hours and not order any alcohol before then ordering their first drink. Well, and the problem is it's not even just not ordering alcohol because they can get to 70 milligrams and then they can be tested an hour later and then they can you know, bump it up to 80 milligrams by using their back extrapolation formula. So well, you don't wait, even have to get to 80. Don't consume any alcohol two hours after. No, but I don't even think that's it. Then you still have to have to prepare the evidence. So say you're arrested um, two hours afterward, you haven't had anything to drink um, or if you've had very little to drink, for example, and you get back to the detachment and they have you blow and you blow 50 milligrams. You had something to drink at two and a half hours afterward. You blow 50 milligrams when you're tested three and a half hours afterward. And then they use the back extrapolation formula to put you into the, uh, into the criminal offense zone. Um, again, you haven't committed the offense in this case, where as you know, if you get to 80 within the two hours, you've committed the offense, but they can use this evidentiary trick to say that you did commit the offense. Right. <laughs> now, you and Tim Foster, smart, another really smart lawyer. We're talking about all the smartest lawyers today. Tim's a great guy. Um, Tim Foster got into a little bit of a debate on Twitter today. It was very short. It, it was, was a short no, debate. I know, because you guys like each other, so, well, you know, you I, didn't want to really fight it out. I respect his opinion. <laughs> um, about whether or not the police can bust down your door without a warrant and come in to get your breath sample if you're at home and you're drinking at home and they knock on the door and go, knock, it's the police. We think you are drinking and we saw you drive home. Come out and give us a breath sample. We saw you drive home and we can see through the window you're sitting at the kitchen table and you've got a bottle of whiskey there and one third of it's gone. We can conclude on that basis that you're over 80 milligrams and you drove uh, 45 minutes ago and you're going to be over 80 milligrams within that two hour window. Come out with your hands up. With your breath ready. <laughs> with your breath ready. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, I think that both of you are equally wrong. Um, and here's why. I'm happy to be wrong about this one. No, it's, they can't just come in. Like, even if they believe that you've committed an indictable offense, because you're in a dwelling house, you have special rights. And they can't just come in unless it is fresh pursuit or to preserve the evidence. And there's actually case law in the drug context, not just on the flushing the cocaine, but case law in the drug context where they can enter and preserve the stuff from being destroyed in the future and then go get the warrant after the initial entry. And that has actually been justified. Okay. But the evidence is the evidence in your body this that's being thing. eliminated and disappear is disappearing. So can they not go in there to preserve that evidence? And they also have reason to believe I don't that think you going in there preserves it any more than well, going hang, and getting a warrant. Hang on though. They have reason to believe you you are committing an offense at the time. At the time you are arrestable. If if a police officer observes you committing an offense or has reason to believe you are committing an offense, you are arrestable. 
but not if you're in a house. There's special rules for houses. Okay, if a police officer sees you covered with blood... That's exigent circumstances. Maybe there's no exigent circumstances. Maybe there's nobody in the house. They, they have reason to believe... They see with a brick of cocaine through the window. That's probably exigent circumstances because you can flush it. Is that what you're saying? They see you with a ton of marijuana plants and an electricity bypass. They go get a warrant, usually. Actually, they don't need a warrant now in BC, but because <laughs> they have the... My point is, I can imagine circumstances where the police are going to make it into your house, and they make it into your house, and you're, it's a hybrid offense, uh, and you are arrestable because you're committing the offense of being drunk, or being over at or over 80 within two hours after. Um, well, and the reality is that the police are going to do it. They're going to go into the house and they're going to demand the breast sample and either get the refusal or get the evidence. They're going to turn around and they're going to justify it for the exact reasons you're saying. Oh, it's exigent circumstances. We're in fresh pursuit because this was part of a, a call to respond to an erratic driver and it was made five minutes ago and we arrived at the house and and they were inside and we, um, you know, we were concerned about the preservation of evidence. And what's going to happen is that's going to have to be tested in court. And then you're going to see a whole new development, which is why this in is really driving law. an issue of driving law, driving the law. And a whole new development of search and seizure, warrantless entry into residences, jurisprudence about the preservation of evidence. And in particular, 24-2 and police acting in good faith based on a mistaken understanding of the law. Because the law is new, they get lots of excuses like Edwards, the knock and approach case. And we will see the evidence admitted rather than excluded, even if breaches are found. I think you may be correct, um, but that partially supports my position when I was tweeting earlier that Tim rejected. So I'll just go with you because at least you support my argument a little bit. I want to know what you do as a police officer now. If you're in a small town, you know everybody in the town, you've seen, you know, Bill drive and, and George and uh, Sally and whoever drive to the bar, and you go into the bar because, you know, you're a police officer in a small town, you walk around through the bar, and you see these people, you know they drove home, uh, and then they maybe walked to the bar, but they drove home or they drove, and you see them in the bar, and you're looking at them and you're saying to yourself, well... I have a reason to suspect that you've got alcohol in your body and you drove within the previous preceding three hours. And um, Well, also in that small town culture, the idea that you would be checked by police in the bar because it's a regular thing that happens would mean you don't have a reasonable expectation that you wouldn't be asked to provide a breath sample. Exactly. And so the police can find you in the bar. against small town people. It can, yeah. The police can find you in the bar. Going through their walk in the bar um, in uh, in Horsefly or wherever, and they know that you drove there before. Bar in Horsefly, probably if there isn't, there should be one. Uh, the <laughs> Horsefly um, bar. But no, the police officers got an obligation to investigate you at that point and maybe detain you and maybe make a demand, even though they know that you were sober when you walked in the bar because you're over eighty and you are committing an offense now, um, an hour after being in the bar. Yeah. What do you do as a cop? Stay out of the bar. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to get involved. Last thing you ever want to do is arrest somebody for for the the offense that they've committed. They've committed the offense. They, they might have a defense that they can raise at trial. Just walk in the bar. You're all under arrest. Are you, you imagine? 
and 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 the the you know detractors of our our beginning stages of cannabis legalization are saying we don't treat alcohol very badly in this country. They should listen to this podcast. <sighs> they should. You could sit in a cannabis smoking lounge and not end up treated this way by police. I just think of even prior to legalization, they wouldn't pop in and go, "You're all under arrest for possession." In Alberta, when I started going to the bars, you know, we'd be in small towns, we'd be visiting friends, whatever, be in uh, in St. Paul or Vegreville, and we'd go to the bar, and the police would come walking in, and I just think like. Now the police, when they walk into the bar, if they know that the person drove within two hours and they see them there, uh, they're going to have to just start arresting people in bars and then get their breath samples. And then the presumption is they're guilty of the offense of having a blood alcohol concentration at or over 80 within the two hours afterward. So then the final question for you today, Paul, on the podcast becomes, does that mean that we are in a police state? I think you're starting to like, I, I, you know, I'm a, people think I'm wearing the tinfoil hat sometimes, but you look at this, um, and it, it feels that way. Now the police for the most part are not behaving that way, but you can expect them to do that in Peel, the Peel <laughs> regional police or others where we see like there's Peel is, is always, it you know, it won't happen in Vancouver, but it will happen in Peel. Well, you know, in BC, we give awards to police officers for getting, you know, the impaired most. Uh, yeah, and this they still. They don't even have to win. This they isn't impaired driving anymore. Proof. They just have to submit the file to Crown. And this isn't impaired driving anymore. This is impaired kitchen table or impaired bar's table or whatever. This is impaired after driving. Impaired after driving or 08 and up after driving. Um, the, uh, yeah, the, the possibility to put yourself on the. Uh, on the um, conveyor belt of, of awards and rewards and recognition is significant. So basically, you just have to see who drives up to the bar, go into the bar, wait until you think they've drunk. Wait an hour. Wait an hour until they, they've had enough to drink. We can wait two hours. You can wait an hour and 59 minutes. Um, and so long as you can conclude in that time that they are more likely than not over 80 milligrams, you can go make a demand, drag them back to the detachment. And even if they blow under... Not uh, even more likely than not, it's credibly based probability because it's the arrest standard. Yeah. It's not even the credibly based probability. probability Credi credibly based probability. Then they get them back to the detachment and they might blow 60 at the detachment, but the, you can use your formula to put them back up to 80 because the so, formula automatically, it, it automatically exists. There you have it. This is a very scary world we are living in, in Canada, and I think everybody should do as much as they possibly can to educate themselves about the nuances of impaired driving laws in this country, because if you don't, you could find yourself in a world of trouble. If you have any questions about the impaired driving laws in Canada, these laws that we talked about today, or any of the other ones that we've talked about, please reach out to us. We're always happy to help. Just don't call us at 2 o'clock in the morning with those questions. Try <laughs> call us during, during business hours would be nice. Yeah. But, you know, if you're in the midst of dealing with the police and you need that answer for immediate legal advice in an emergency situation, you can call. If you call at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, usually I'm willing to discuss it at, at length and yeah. a Paul, little bit more philosophically. Leaning back in his chair, feet up on his desk, crossed. Um, and uh, uh, sort of staring out the window with a headset on, and he'll chat with you for like half an hour while I anxiously await to talk to him about some more urgent, you know, 
issue requiring a response from a crown inquiry on something. But yes. It's a public service. <laughs> it is. We do provide a public service and we are happy to take your calls. So if you need to reach out to us, you can phone us at 604-685-8889 or find us online, vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. I don't want to give anything away, but we have all sorts of amazing guests uh, starting to be lined up for the rest of the year. So I'm looking forward to 2019 and how Driving Law is really going to be driving the law. 